Tuesday, June 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro and from Motley Fool Options, Jeff Fisher and Brian Hinman. Gentlemen, good to have you here. Hey, Chris. Thank you. You oversold us right from the start with a gentleman. Uh, label, but we'll we'll try. We'll try to live up to that. I think longtime listeners know that uh, that I was just I was just being polite. <laughs> um, uh, I feel like this is our acquisition special because we've got Starbucks, Google, and Amazon all making acquisitions. Uh, we'll get into each one of them, but let's start with Starbucks. Starbucks is buying La Boulange for $100 million. Well said. Thank you. Not bad for a guy who never took French. He ate croissants all morning just practicing. <laughs> just to prep. Uh, La Boulange has 19 retail locations in the San Francisco area. Um, and, guys, the plan appears to be not only to expand the retailer to other locations, but to take their uh, their pastries and their sandwiches and get them into Starbucks locations across America. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you. Uh, I'm a longtime Starbucks shareholder, and I'm the first to say that the baked goods at Starbucks just aren't cutting it. So, so on the one hand, I'm very pleased about this, and yet shares were down this morning. Why is that? This seems like a natural fit. They were. They were down, and I think that's mainly because Starbucks said this will cut about two cents per share from earnings in the second half of this year as they invest in the brand. Hey, now. Two cents? Two cents per share. And, but also, Chris, as you probably know, maybe, maybe not as a shareholder, shares were up just as much yesterday in anticipation of this news, and now they're just selling off uh, uh, after the news has come out. But it is important for Starbucks to improve its food offering. As you said, they've been trying to, to sell food for years, yep. and it has become 17% of their revenue as of 2011. So, uh, But what, what what's happening is you have all these other quick-serve restaurants from everything from McDonald's to Panera selling coffee, good coffee, yep. along with food. So that's a convenience. You can go one place and get everything. Starbucks needs to compete with that with, with better food. So I'm, I'm glad they're doing this. And they have all the right names in place, the name of the, the chain. They're hiring a chef, too. His first name is Pascal. Oh, so this wow. all comes together. It's, <laughs> it's go. going from to be a, great. From a branding standpoint. But what, what they plan to do, it, it, it's taking longer than I would like, but they're going to start selling the bread in, in stores beginning in San Francisco. So San Francisco people, you're lucky, uh, <laughs> early next year, and then build it out into a national brand in retail location, in Starbucks locations. And then the plan is to sell the bread in grocery stores as well. And Starbucks does get a fair amount of revenue, about 7% of revenue from consumer packaged goods. It's mainly coffee and tea in grocery stores. And they yep. want to add to that with, with bread now too. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, you, you asked why doesn't the market like this? The market doesn't like this because the market is short-sighted, right? And it, it's going to hit earnings in two, by two cents this year. And they, uh, Starbucks announced that it's going to hit earnings next year as well. But if you look, take the longer view here and look at this strategically, you know, what are Starbucks' main assets? They have 8,000 U.S. locations, so they have an incredible footprint. They have incredible trust uh, and mind share their customer base. And so you look at this deal, and if what they can do is they can take different branded products mm -hmm. and use you know that trust they have with their user base and those 8000 locations and they can push out all sorts of branded products i mean you look at what they've done with tazo tea with via 
they're doing it with their juice concept. Yep. And now they're branding you know, bakery products. Uh, and you can only get away with this if you have a really tight relationship with your core customer base, which they do. So uh, if you look at this picture, you look, look at this acquisition in a bigger picture, it's really just an example of how Starbucks isn't just a restaurant. It's not just a coffee company. Starbucks is a relationship with consumers uh, that it is going to tack on brands around that core Starbucks brand. It's really, it's really pretty promising. I, um, I got to say, Jeff, um, Howard Schultz, when he returned to be CEO of the company, um, 2008. Yep, yeah, 2008. Um, you know, there was uh, some talk at the time, like you know, the the company had struggled a little bit, and and I think legitimate questions being raised about where is this company going. Uh, but to some of the points that Brian made, I mean, you look at the last four years, um, the acquisitions that he's made, I think it was Evolution Fresh, the, mm-hmm. the juice the juice, yep. the juice company, uh, the rollout of Via, which I was among the first people to make fun of, like this, this whole instant coffee concept, too, and, yeah. and it's, been, it's been great for them. He's, he's really kind of on a roll. He really is, and I was thinking about that before the show, how he has been a key example of how much a CEO can matter. He was CEO from 1985. A little bit of history. Of course, coffee is Schultz's passion, and that's Mm -hmm. why Starbucks has done so well at coffee and why I think it hasn't fared as well in food and why there's still some risk to this attempt. But uh, So Schultz went to Milan in 1983 and saw the potential of espresso bars there. And by 1985, he came back and launched uh, Il Giornale, Mm -hmm. his own little uh, coffee shop. And then later they acquired Starbucks, which was at the time just selling beans. But anyway, Howard Schultz has been key. He came back in nineteen or er, in two thousand eight. He remained chairman. He left CEO in two thousand. Came back as CEO in two thousand eight when Starbucks was really struggling. Yeah. And has quickly turned it around in four years. And now today's news is taken seriously enough that Panera Bread is down. Was down quite a bit this morning in an up market. And I think uh, the reason for that is bread is. Panera's passion. So they've done very well with that. And now if Starbucks is going after it, I'm sure they're studying Panera. So I took a look at Panera. Panera considers its competitive advantage its 24 fresh dough factories, facilities around the country. And each one of those serves about seven stores each day. Panera only has 1,600 stores, so it's a fraction of Starbucks. But Panera leases 200 trucks to get that bread out. It consider that, considers that a competitive advantage so if Starbucks is going to compete with Panera and make high-quality bread fresh every day, there's going to be a significant investment to scale. I was just going to say that that, that sounds like um, you know we're going to we're just moments away uh, from Starbucks announcing. Oh, and by the way, we're going to be building these you know these new bread centers all over America. Yeah, they might have to, and maybe that's why the shares are down as well. But but it's to Starbucks credit, I think that to, that Panera is down on no other news that I can see. Meaning the market is taking this somewhat seriously. Yeah, and I think also what this does too is, you know, when when Howard Schultz stepped back in, uh, it was at a point in time where Starbucks had screwed up their growth uh, internationally, and they had to cut back on store openings. They were actually closing some domestic stores, and so all of a sudden you had an identity crisis where Starbucks uh, didn't look like a growth company anymore. Now, you know, fast forward a couple years and look at what Schultz has done. You know, he has the Evolution Fresh concept that they're going to be rolling out and just demolishing Jamba Juice, right? The plan is hundreds of stores. Yeah, several hundreds of stores. Mm. And then you look at La Boulage, right? And you've got 19 locations only in San Francisco. And then you look at Panera, who has 16 
hundred locations and is growing like a weed. So all of a sudden, you know, in, in a few short years, Schultz has taken, you know, a, a growth stock that hit a wall. And now you sort of see the next decade of growth uh, is wide open for Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you have their ability to take all these these brands that they're building uh, and sell them through their consumer products group. I mean, it's really a, a very impressive machine they've got going. So let's let's just close out on the stock because, um, as I mentioned, down a little bit today. Kind of a wash, Jeff, when you look at how it popped a little bit yesterday. Mm-hmm. Where do you like the shares right now? Are they are they fairly priced? Are they richly priced? Or is this a you know dare I say it a a little bit of a value stock? I think right now they're about fairly priced. Last I looked, they traded a low 20s multiple to earnings for the coming year, which given their growth rate in the high teens is maybe even a little bit uh, inexpensive for a, a brand of this quality. But it's important that they get food right because as we started out with, so many competitors are offering, offering coffee and good food together. Starbucks has to do that too. Google is buying tech startup Mebo for $100 million. Apparently, $100 million is... It doesn't mean anything, It's the number of the day. Uh, (laughs) Google says that this acquisition will bring more tools to Google+, Plus, which has about 170 million members. Brian, I'm I'm just compelled to ask, is anything going to help Google+, Plus? (laughs) Well, anything can help Google, (laughs) Google+, Plus, right? I mean, yes, this will help Google+. Uh, that, That isn't much of a hurdle. Uh, but the bottom line is Mebo enables sharing between uh, you know users, what they're doing on the web, and their social contacts. And sharing uh, user-specific information is Google's competitive advantage, having that information. And so anything that Google can do to tap into uh, monitoring what you're doing on the web uh, and making it easier for you to share uh, with your contacts who then, you know, they learn more about uh, or just share it directly uh, is going to benefit Google Plus and it's going to add to their information advantage. Do you think that the, the long-term play here for Google, because we've talked recently about Facebook and whether or not Facebook needs to develop some sort of premium membership and what they can do to do that. Do you think the long-term play with Google Plus is is that same goal, where it's we want to add enough things where ultimately people are going to pay us to be a member of Google Plus, or is or is the goal, or maybe even just the fallback position? You know what? That'd be great. But if nothing else, all of the sharing that you were just talking about, Brian, enables us Google to serve ads better, and we can make even more money off the ads. I think that's it. That's their core competency. And Google also has a history of acquiring things and then giving them away for free. So the most recent uh, example of this is Zagat, right, where they acquired you know these restaurant ratings that yep. people pay for willingly, and Google turned that on its head and said, nope, we're giving that away for free. The information that we gather about you know, how people interact with those ratings and that information is more valuable to us in terms of advertising and building that information edge than the actual value that people are paying. So, no, I don't think that they're trying to build, you know, this super social networking site that is going to be so great that people need to pay for it. I just don't see it. Yeah, Google has bought 140 companies since 2009 for about 16 billion total, which comes to beautiful number 114 million a piece on average. So this one's right in line there. They still have 47 billion in cash. So these little acquisitions either stick or they don't stick. They create value or they disappear. It 
shouldn't hurt Google much either way. But Mebo is interesting because it's it's the personalization that we all talked about in the 90s when it was really annoying push technology, yep. streamers on your screen. This is a little bar at the bottom of your browser that lets you thumb up or thumb down content. So it starts to, to personalize your web experience. And then, of course, it lets you easily share it among friends. Right now, you sign up to Mebo typically either through your Facebook or Twitter account. I want to see how many days it takes until there's now a yeah. Google Plus <laughs> sign in to. Or, or, or until they hide the Facebook button, right? <laughs> that would be a poor experience. <laughs> you, have to, you, have to, you have to answer a trivia question to be able to share it on, on Facebook. But like Brian said, it's all about targeted ads. The more personalized you make your experience, the more you'll get these targeted ads. If they're relevant to you, is that a bad or good thing? You know, that's the debate yep. we always have on this show. But Well, and you mentioned all those acquisitions um, and $16 billion, That's a huge number. Most of that, though was from the Motorola Mobility. That was $12.5 billion. So you look at the, you, you back that out, and you're looking at Google making 139... Really small acquisitions. Re, for right? them, really small That's acquisitions. Yep. Um, so it seems like, you know, to, to your point, Brian, they're, they're probably going to continue down that path of just, you know, they have the cash, um, and they're going to they're going to spend it to serve sort of the greater good, and in their case, the greater good is being able to target ads better. Yeah, I would totally expect that to happen. And you know that ratio, 139 or whatever, to you know the remaining money that they've spent is about right. It's the Silicon Valley mentality to fail quickly, right? And so they're not afraid to make these small bets that could turn out really big. They've they've you know struck gold more than once, uh, allowing employees to you know engage in 20% time. So uh, that's the, the culture of the company. And these the acquisitions that they make, they're not facing this enormous integration risk. They're, they're acquiring like 10 dudes in a warehouse with some computers. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, really, it, it, it's, just, cool it's just... But they're cool dudes. They are cool. unshaven and... <laughs> Very hip. They're 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 called programmers these days. <laughs> Please tell me you made that up. Nope, that is a. That's, I've never that's heard a that term, term. But that shows how uncool I am. Yeah, you I'm guys got to get with the times. Programmers. Programmers. I, I'd love to throw in a plug for a personalized magazine. If you guys heard of Zite, Z I T E. Yes. No. Great app on uh, on Apple or I think Android. Personalized magazine that you you enter your areas of interest and th- it just gets better and better the more you use it. And there's I have not seen anything that's disruptive or annoying about it. No ads or anything. It's just an app, a standalone. Are app. you one of the founders and you're hoping Google's going to acquire you? No, I have no no interest in it. Uh, just to, just to close out on the stock, you look at uh, Google matched up with you know another big search company like Baidu. Over the last year, Google stock has has done well, but you you. Back that out two years, five, ten years. Baidu is a stock that's that's really been on a tear. Um, where do you think Google is right now, Jeff, as a stock? People really underestimated Baidu, and, and it had kind of a Chinese discount to it as well. Mm-hmm. Google, meanwhile, has grown into its valuation extremely well, and now it looks inexpensive to me. I, I like it as a, a long-term hold. You agree with that, Brian? Buy. Yeah, I do. I mean, you look at the company, it, it mints cash. Uh, Remarkable, remarkable profit margins on this company, and there's still a transition, you know, towards the type of advertising that, uh, you know, is in their sweet spot. So I think there's there's still plenty of room there, and there's no reason that they aren't going to be a major player uh, in the mobile ad space whenever that sort of gets yeah, up they're running. really doing well on mobile. You're right, Brian, in ways that others have not yet, including Facebook. And finally, Amazon has bought Avalon Books, a publisher of, quote, wholesome entertainment books, including romance, mysteries, and westerns. Uh, the sum was not $100 million. It was not disclosed, <laughs> actually. Um, 
Why this deal, Jeff? Why? I mean, is is this really where Amazon is going to find its growth in acquiring written content? Well, it's certainly high margin profit. A majority of Amazon's book sales now are eBooks. Okay. So all you're selling are words, or maybe some pictures too. You're selling intellectual. Wholesome in this case. Very <laughs> intellectual. Wholesome. Yes, they are. Avalon is. You're selling intellectual property, and so if you can own that property, your margins go much, much higher than if you're just a middleman pushing it through. And we're sure Amazon is paying a small price for these for these titles. They're getting 3,000 titles here that have never been digitized yet, and Amazon is the master. With Oprah out of the picture, Amazon <laughs> is the one who can sell a book like nobody else. So. How many years can they monetize these three thousand titles? You know, many, many years at a high margin. So it does make sense. They now own eight separate publishing lines. They have their own publishing line, and they are becoming the dominant force in in which authors sell. What do you think, Brian? Is this the whether it's books or movies or maybe even music? Is this where Amazon is going? More content acquisition, or do partnerships make more sense for them? I think you're going to see more content acquisition. You know, you've got their prime service as well. You would think that the they're going to provide a little more content that users want in that, you know, in that if and if they can bundle it with uh, if they can somehow put together uh an offering that is competitive, people like Amazon. So, uh you're going to have some interest there uh, from the user standpoint. But what's interesting about this deal is uh, the type of titles that they acquired. And namely, you know, many of these titles are the romance titles. And the romance books uh, have really taken to the e-reader masses. Uh, in, in fact, I think it was last year, sales of romance books on e-readers outpaced the actual physical sale of romance books. Uh, because of the privacy aspect. Absolutely. That doesn't surprise me at all. I uh, had uh, some friends over uh, over the weekend, and the woman was talking about sitting at the pool reading Fifty Shades of Grey (laughs) on her Kindle, and she made a point to say, you know, hey, it was on my Kindle, so no one knew I was reading it. And you got the pool right there in case you need to cool off, right? uh, uh, That's what I'm assuming. (laughs) Romance publishers years ago should have just taken the cover off the book. They would have sold many more copies. Removable cover. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that why the brown paper wrapper was invented? What's interesting, too, is <laughs> yeah, for all kinds of things. Avalon chose to sell to Amazon to assure that it would have a future, which tells you kind of the state of traditional publishing right now. Right. This, I mean, I should say, this is, this is a, a 60-year-old um, publishing house in New York. So this is, you know, this is not make some the leap, fly-by-night operation. They're trying to make the leap into digital, and they're, they're, there's an onslaught of books out there. Ebooks, everyone's pumping them out. So unless you have visibility, you're 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 lost. Yeah. What what is a bigger version of this deal? Because I'll be honest, I had never heard of Avalon Books before um, seeing about this deal. What is a, a a version of this deal on steroids that would make a lot of sense for Amazon? Is it to go after maybe uh, a major publisher, a Harper Collins kind of thing, or or even on the movie studio side? What do you think? Think big, Brian. Think big. So there's a there's a, a company that's also trying to disrupt the traditional publishing model called Lulu.com. And this makes a lot of sense, I think, for Amazon, who is already trying to uh, help authors self-publish. It's pretty easy to, to publish a, a, a Kindle book, but uh, Lulu has a lot of the resources that uh, publishers traditionally provide in terms of, you know, editing the content and that sort of thing. But 
the place where it fits so well with Amazon is people are coming to Amazon in mass to look for books, and their recommendation engine uh, could really help uh, you know an, an unproven author who mm-hmm. is trying to self-publish find the right audience. And so that I think is a sort of big picture way out there, really interesting possible matchup. All right, Jeff. As we head into summer, I mm-hmm. want two book recommendations. Give, give me something on the financial side, like a business investing type of thing for for people who are looking for that. Boring. And then, and then some, <laughs> please. That's all you read. What are you, who are you kidding? Uh, I see the books on your desk. You're at the beach reading SEC filings. Ten K. I was I was really trying to beef up my image, and you guys are are beating me down right now. Sorry. And 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 something on the lighter side, non business. What do you got for me, Jeff? All right. The first one is called "What's Behind the Numbers." And it is a book that comes out in September from Motley Fool compatriots, John DelVecchio and Tom Jacobs. Oh, okay. And I should disclose right up front, uh, we're friends. We've worked together. They, they're they advisors on two full services. I get nothing when they sell a, a copy of their book, though. But I did just read it. I read a, an, an early version, and that's why it's top of mind, and it was excellent. What 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 it is is John DeVecchio is sharing you how he finds poor earnings qualities at companies and then to, to short those companies or just avoid them. Mm-hmm. And Tom shares how he finds special opportunities to buy in small caps. Okay. So uh, what's behind the numbers? It's very cheap on Amazon right now if you pre-order it. And something on the lighter side, non-business? Well, it wasn't that light, but I just also read <laughs> – Brian's going to laugh at this <laughs> – of parrots and people – by a woman, Mira, uh, Mira Tweedy. And, uh, Is that really her name? That's really her last name. Maybe I'm not saying it correctly. <laughs> Is that really the name of the book? T-W-E-T-I. Yeah, of Parrots and People. Parrots and it's a people. 2008 book about the illegal parrot trade all around the world and how intelligent parrots are and how they should not be kept as pets and really the tragedy of, of silent force that are befalling uh, Mexico, South America, Africa, because all the parrots are being taken out and how they're a key part of the ecosystem. And, yeah, we shouldn't have pet parrots. The illegal trade really needs to stop. It was a very compelling book. Jeff, you totally redeemed yourself there. <laughs> Brian, what do is you got? Is that possible? Two, two book recommendations. <laughs> so I'm going to cheat because I always do. My first one is not a book. But for the business book, with air quotes, um, people should read the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Shareholder Letters written by Warren Buffett. They're available on BerkshireHathaway.com. Uh, he has the his shareholder letters from 1977 to 2011. It is an MBA. It is easy to read. It is fun. Uh, it is the best business book, non-book, that there is. Okay. Uh, and then non-business, uh, a book called Scratch Beginnings, Me, $25 in the Search for the American Dream uh, by Adam Shepard. It's about a, a guy who graduated from college, uh, and was just pretty upset that he couldn't find a job and that uh, the typical thinking was that uh, the the American system was that, you know, if you are down, you are kept down. And so he sort of wanted to test that theory. Uh, and so he got a sleeping bag, $25, and chose a city at random, which happened to be Charleston, South Carolina, and said, all right, I'm going to go see if I can overcome having nothing. And so it's about his journey to find a job, get an apartment, buy a car, starting with virtually nothing in a new place. All right. Brian that sounds Hinden? great. Yeah. Are you thinking about doing that, Brian? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian, Jeff Fisher, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Mac Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Legal paratrade. You don't get that on other shows. <laughs> you do not. We, that's, that's where the motley comes in. People. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> it's huge. I thought, sadly. Too. How I, much money is going on in the illegal paratrade? Oh, billions around billions? the world. Yep. In parents? Couple. There's, I mean, wow. a, a single macaw can be $16,000. They're, they're so when rare. He sta- when he started on the illegal paratrade, I thought there were going to be pirates all of a sudden. Oh, man. Modern day pirates, yes. <laughs>